Good afternoon. It's Friday the 27th of October 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today is Brian Gerrish. And by video link, we have Vanessa Bailey. Uh, we're going to get uh, started today with the online safety bill. Uh, it is no longer a bill. It is now an act. It became law yesterday. Uh, let's just have a very brief look at what the uh, government is saying about it. Uh, this is going to make sure that illegal content is removed. And this is the only positive out of this whole thing. Uh, because the fact that the government was forced to drop the uh, uh, harmful but legal uh, aspect of this was a positive development. Uh, it's going to enforce the promises social media platforms make to users when they sign up through terms and conditions. And this is the key uh, point. So instead of uh, the government aiming to work out what is uh, legal content, which is harmful, that they want to ban, uh, they're basically going to require Ofcom to uh, hassle social media platforms to make sure that the terms and conditions are followed to the letter. Uh, uh, they are going to offer users the options to filter out content uh, such as online abuse that they don't want to see. Well, if it was only online abuse, uh, that might be a positive development. But of course, this is uh, not about online abuse or child protection or terrorism content. It's about censorship. Uh, and we will maintain that uh, that uh, analysis. Uh, so Ofcom has been made uh, the regulator, of course, uh, and let's just see what they uh, had to say about this. Uh, they are going to take this responsibility as the new regulator uh, in three main phases. So phase one, they're saying they're going to publish draft codes and guidance on their duties uh, on the 9th of November 2023, uh, including analysis of the cause and impacts of online harm to sports services and carrying out the risk assessments, because there's a whole regulatory burden that now goes on to uh, the various platforms. Uh, they're going to provide draft guidance on recommended uh, processes for assessing risk. Uh, they're going to create draft codes of practice, setting out what services can do to mitigate the risk of harm. And they're going to set out uh, draft guidelines on Ofcom's approach to enforcement. They're going to run a consultation on those uh, guidelines and uh, the codes of pra practice will then be submitted uh, to the Secretary of State for Science, Innovation and Technology and subject to the, the approval there laid before Parliament. So there is going to be parliamentary oversight of this. There's still plenty of opportunity to get involved in that process. Uh, phase two involves child safety, pornography and the protection of women and girls. And they're saying that they are going to uh, focus on regulated services and other interested stakeholders who will be able to read and respond to draft codes of practice related to the protection of children. And that's going to be in the spring of 2024. They're also going to consult on the analysis and causes of impacts of online harm to children, and they're going to uh, create a draft risk assessment uh, guidance for focusing on children's, children's harms and so on. Uh, and then finally, phase three is about transparency, user empowerment and other duties on categorized uh, services. So they're going to require companies to provide transparency reports. And this is all about how they uh, manage their uh, censorship regimes, how they actually adhere to their terms and conditions. So they're provide to, required to provide transparency reports uh, that's going to provide, as they say, user empowerment tools, uh, and they're going to enforce this operation in line with terms of service. Uh, the other aspect of phase three is the protection of certain types of journalistic content, because if uh, as a, a media organization, any media organization wants to sign up to this regulatory regime, uh, they can do so. Uh, and then they may uh, find that some of their content is protected uh, and social media companies, no matter what it says in terms and conditions and so on, uh, will not be able to, to remove that content. This, of course, is all about making sure that the regulated narrative is protected uh, and that uh, may be viewed as being the government narrative. Um, so here is uh, Dame Melanie Dawes, the uh, chair of Ofcom. Uh, Ofcom is not a censor, she says, and our new powers are not about taking content down. Well, of course, Ofcom is not the censor. The censor is the platforms. The censor is the Googles, the Facebooks, the Twitters of the world. Ofcom is merely making sure that they pursue their uh, censorship uh, requirement as regular. That's the uh, platform censorship requirement as rigorously as possible. So they say our job is to tackle the root causes of harm. How are they going to do that? Are they going to provide all kinds of societal change, which is going to deal with the root cause? root causes of harm? Are they going to tackle the criminal element which is producing the harm? No, they're not. And um, particularly where there's a lot of money to be made out of it, it's going to continue. Uh, indeed. So uh, let's bring this on because, of course, we're talking about transparency. 
uh, reports, uh, they are going to be required to issue transparency notices. So if they feel that uh, a particular organization is not uh, fulfilling their transparency requirements, they'll be in receipt of a transparency notice and they'll then have to do certain things to re resolve that. But I just was amused at this press release from Ofcom in February this year, talking about how they had been signing up surreptitiously, anonymously, not as Ofcom, to various platforms uh, in order to establish what the user experience is like uh, uh, with a view to informing how they enforce uh, these uh, these transparency platforms. And of course, the other aspect that I haven't mentioned so far is the effect on end-to-end -end encryption. And just a quick reminder uh, that, of course, the uh, consultation which closed on in July on the revised Investigatory Powers Act notices regime, uh, well, we haven't uh, had a feedback from that yet, but of course, this is all about various other types of notices uh, about making sure the government can get, get access to uh, encrypted uh, chats uh, and so on whenever the government makes a notice. But the key point, as I'll just remind everybody, is that uh, if they have issued a notice to say, for example, uh, get some information about who Brian Gerrish was speaking to at a particular time and what he might have been saying, they're not allowed to inform Brian that they've been in receipt of that notice. So the, uh, the process of online safety and censorship begins now. Begins, and um, let's come in at a slightly different angle. Uh, this article from The Guardian caught my eye. It's uh, labelled Opinion BBC, the furore over the BBC's Gaza, uh, sorry, Israel-Gaza coverage shows how strong and independent it needs to be. Starving the corporation of funds has been an act of national self-harm. We, we can make it fit uh, to fight digital disinformation. So the gentleman in the picture, Pat Young, chairs the British Broadcasting Challenge, which promotes discussion about UK public service broadcasting. So I was fascinated by this article and I delved into it. One of the key images that comes up is the one you can see, which uh, they had uh, labelled pro-Palestinian demonstrators throw paint over the BBC building. Uh, but let's get into the meat of it very quickly. It says the BBC operates under the most intense scrutiny of any media organisation in the world. And this has never been more apparent than over recent days as the world comes to terms with an unimaginable massacre in Israel and the aftermath in Gaza. Interesting language there by The Guardian, of course. Um, a number of politicians and media outlets, most with not well-hidden agendas, have chosen to see the BBC as the issue on which to concentrate their right. Well, uh, we're absolutely right. Uh, so it goes on to say the BBC is the issue because a strong, well-funded and editorially independent BBC has never been more important for an informed democracy uh, than it is today. But the government's been stripping away funds. People have been questioning its impartiality quite rightly. And uh, so now we find ourselves with 30% cuts to the BBC budgets. And oh dear, there's woe. But what is this uh, British broadcasting challenge that this gentleman is involved in? Well, this is where it gets really interesting because here it is. And it's got two simple goals to promote a wide ranging discussion about the future of UK public service broadcasting, its potential for good, its ability to transmit truth, its institutional place at the heart of the UK, and how it can be improved for the digital age. And they want that debate in public. Well, at least that uh, second point is of interest. Um, but if we get into a little bit more detail about them, they say, we know facts matter, we know accountability matters, we know identity matters, we believe that how these values are transmitted matters. And then it goes on to say, we're very lucky in the UK because we've got the publicly owned BBC Channel 4, S4C, with agreed content commitments from ITV Channel 5, Scottish Television, Ulster Television, as well as obligations on all licensed broadcasters. This ecosystem works to ensure fairness and partiality uh, through its uniquely British construction, whatever that means, it covers commitments, content, arts and religions, betrayal of the nations and regions. And then by the time you get to the bottom, it's also pointing out that there's 118 billion circulating, which it says is, is added value to UK PLC. A lot of questions to be asked about that. And if I do this second bit very, uh, very quickly here, um, it says that 
They're worried because in a fast-changing media landscape, our unique ecosystem is under threat, under funding from the proliferation of unregulated broadcasters online. This is where the fear is coming from, and from the exponential exponential growth of social media platforms from US-based streaming services shorn of any public service broadcasting obligations, from changes driven by ideology over evidence, and even from benign neglect. So it's all woe, but what are they really frightened about social media coming online? But they ask this question, they say, if the government has got a deliberation going on about the future of public service broadcasting, shouldn't this be uh, available to the public? So I'm going to go with them on this point, although clearly they're in defence of the whole system it's, uh, in itself. And if I come to the Public Service Broadcasting Advisory Panel, which was set up here, we're talking 2020, let's bring in a headline, membership of the advisory panel is voluntary, an invitation from the Secretary of State, uh, Culture, Media and Sport, and or the Minister of State for Me Media and Data, who will chair the panel. So it's clearly independent, Mike, as you can see. And it goes on to talk about its role of purpose, uh, role and purpose, so whether the concept of public servicing broadcast is still valid, how it should conduct its affairs, how it should be regulated. But then my eye was cast to the selected people. And we've got senior advisor at BT. Uh, we've got Liberty Global. We've got Lord Grade, former chief executive of Channel 4, chairman of the BBC Board of Governors and executive chairman of ITV PLC. They're all completely independent still. Um, and then we drop down through this selection, which I'd encourage people to look. And this one caught my eye, Sophie Turner-Lang, former CEO of Endemol Shine Group. Now, I have never heard of Endemol Shine Group, so I did a little bit of work on that. And here is a takeover of Endemol, uh, which means that it's now uh, the, the largest international content producer and distributor, uh, 88,000 hours of multi-genre premium entertainment, most of, most of which I've seen is very dark. And you're talking about uh, 2.7 billion so this is the powerhouse that's working behind closed doors with the government to talk about the future of public service broadcasting. And I think there's a lot of questions to be asked as to how this little arrangement is working. Okay, uh, let's uh, move over to Vanessa then. Welcome to the program, Vanessa. Uh, let's head for uh, Israel and Gaza. Yes. So first of all, I wanted to draw attention to um, a statement made by President Biden in light of the soaring Gaza death toll. This is an article in The Cradle uh, written by the news desk, um, calls the deaths of innocents a price to pay. So let's see what he's actually referring to. Um, he basically is very disparaging about the figures being put out by the health ministry in Gaza, despite the fact that traditionally, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, UN agencies have always relied on those figures and found them to be uh, historically very uh, accurate. Um, so he says, I'm sure innocents have been killed and it's the price of waging a war. So it appears to, to put no responsibility on Israel for effectively the massacre that is going on uh, inside the Gaza concentration camp. Reminds me a little bit, uh, not totally similar context, but to Madeleine Albright, who over the death of 500,000 dead Iraqi children said that it was a very hard choice, but the price, we think the price is worth it. Um, as I said, not, not entirely similar context, but it just reminded me of that. So in response, the Palestinian Ministry of Health has now published a 212-page report, which is available online, including all details, names, family names, etc., of more than, I think we're now at 7,500 killed in Gaza that are currently being buried in mass graves and their bodies are being held in converted poultry trucks and ice cream trucks. 3,000 children, just please let that sink in. How many schools in the UK um, would that involve of children? Then I want to focus on the continued dehumanization campaign um, particularly by uh, members of the Zionist government or with connection to the government. This is from Dan 
Gilliman, former UN ambassador of Israel 2003 to 2008. Interestingly, he's also a senior advisor to the Blackstone Group and CEO uh, or chairman of the Blackstone Group Israel. So let's roll that, Mike. Just want to ask you then about something else he said in his speech, which is about um, the collective punishment, as he put it, of the Palestinian people. And I want to talk about that in the context of the blockade and keeping fuel out of Gaza. I just wonder if you think that that is really necessary. You know, I'm, I'm very puzzled by the constant uh, concern which the world and, uh, and also Britain, I must say, Mark, is showing for the Palestinian people and is actually showing for these horrible, inhuman animals who have done the worst atrocities that this century has seen and the worst atrocities that Jews have suffered since the Holocaust. Interesting language being deployed there. Um, and then we have James Woods, who I believe was the executive producer on the film Oppenheimer, uh, who tweeted out, and I have to say, although um, X, as it's currently called, may have limited visibility, there has been no action against this, which is clearly um, hate speech on the par for me with uh, the hate speech and dehumanization rhetoric that the Nazis deployed against the Jews. So he says, bomb the savages who did this back to the Stone Age. There are no gray areas. Kill them all, every Hamas savage and every Hamas supporter on earth. Bury them with the entrails of pigs. Just to clarify um, that guards and civilians have been putting out um, very regular um, announcements that they stand by the resistant factions and that they're not going to be driven out of Gaza. Next, I want to show a very short clip of a, uh, an interview again by Sky News with an IDF commander, which is quite extraordinary. Now, on the bombardment of Gaza, it's causing a death toll that is uh, surpassing anything in the decades-long Israel-Palestine conflict. What percentage of the something like 700 deaths a day that are being reported from Gaza, what percentage are Hamas terrorists. Mark, we are not bombarding Gaza. Oh, you can, you can watch the, the full um, section of that interview. Um, it's available pretty much everywhere on social media. Um, but interesting that Max Blumenthal then tweeted out following Netanyahu's uh, address amid the war with the Palestinian resistance factions, Netanyahu, the leader of Israel's master race democracy, this is Max's terminology, declares, we are the people of the light. They, presumably meaning the Palestinians, are the people of darkness. Then vows to fulfill biblical prophecy, which is based on the apocalypse, through the bombardment of Gaza. Personally, I've been calling it the Hiroshima Doctrine. Uh, in the last 19 days, Israel has dropped more than 12,000 tons of explosives, which is equivalent, according to many, um, of the Hiroshima atomic bomb. And here is just a few seconds of what that looks like for Palestinians. Um, then moving on, uh, Israel's ambassador to the UN, Gilad Erdin, who, by the way, when he stepped up to speak at the UNGA, many diplomats walked out in protest um, from, from the meeting. Um, so here he states, this was, I think, on the 18th of October, Israel has a right to self-defense, so we're back onto uh, self-defense. Um, Hamas is solely responsible for the Palestinian situation in Gaza and is committing crimes against humanity. We'll come on to that. In the wake of the Holocaust, we collectively swore never again. So we have reference to the Holocaust again. This is one of the main reasons the UN was established. Never again, dear colleagues, of course, within three years of the end of the Second World War, um, the Zionists were carrying out another ethnic cleansing against Palestinians, uh, which is being denied, of course, by Zionists and their supporters. Um, and following on from this self-defense 
trope that is that is rolled out by Israeli spokespeople. I want to play this video um, recent by uh, Gideon Levy, a journalist for Haaretz. He's a Jew, and here he's speaking about um, the Israeli state. I know many occupations which were longer than Israeli occupation, than the Israeli occupation. Some were even more brutal, even though it's getting harder and harder to be more brutal than the Israeli occupation. I don't recall one occupation in which the occupier presents himself as the victim. Not only the victim, the only victim. If to phrase here, if to quote here the late Golda Meir, she once said that we will never forgive the Arabs for forcing us to kill their children. We are the victims. We are forced to kill their children. Poor us. And as the victim and the only victim in history, again, it enables us the rights to do whatever we want, and nobody is going to tell us what to do, because we are the only victims. To this, there is a third very deep-rooted value, and this is the very deep belief, again, everyone will deny it, but if you scratch under the skin of almost every Israeli, you'll find it there. The Palestinians are not equal human beings like us. Um, then what I want to very quickly look at, because I can see that I'm running out of time. Um, the IOF is still claiming, of course, that it was an, a Palestinian resistance failed missile that caused uh, the Gaza hospital blast at the Baptist Hospital. However, even New York Times is putting out a report saying that it has evidence that that is, is not necessarily plausible. Moving on, Mike, um, to the next article, sorry, to the Mondo Vice article, because uh, I'll just rush through these a little bit. People can read the articles for themselves. So this is a Mondo Vice article that was put out um, quite recently in the last couple of days. A growing number of reports indicate Israeli forces were responsible for Israeli civilian and military death following October 7th attack. Please do read um, these accounts that I'm going to be showing you. So basically, I'll, I'll go through very quickly. This is testimony from a local resident um, whose partner was killed, who talks about on the Monday, so uh, two days after the original attack, on the Monday, Israeli tanks carried out the shelling of buildings that contained not only um, resistance, armed resistance factions, but also civilians. So they effectively killed uh, a number of civilians. And then moving on to the, the recent release of um, hostages taken by uh, the resistance factions. Um, this is Yochaved uh, Lifshitz's statement that caused great uh, perturbation amongst uh, the, the, the Zionist media and, and PR um, moguls in Israel, if we can see what they actually said, um, because basically uh, Lifshitz was saying that they were treated extremely well um, by the resistance factions. And in fact, the footage of her leaving shows her shaking the hand of one of her captors, um, a source who's involved in Israel's wartime public diplomacy, um, basically stated that uh, allowing Lefschetz to speak publicly with her daughter translating into English had harmed Israeli Hasbara. Hasbara, public diplomacy, basically supporting Israeli uh, political agenda. Um, two other articles that I recommend that basically bring together all of the alleged atrocities and break them down uh, and demonstrate that actually many of them were based on unverified, unsubstantiated reports and should be either retracted or qualified post uh, the event. So we're seeing again the rush to judgment, the claim of atrocities is now being severely watered down by good investigative journalism. So you have this article from The Cradle and then last um, from Mint Press News, how big media facilitates um, Israeli war crimes in Gaza. I do recommend people read both of those. Okay, brilliant. Thank you very much for that, Vanessa. Let's uh, move on. We'll come back to this topic a, a little later, but let's move on uh, with this. Yesterday, uh, Rishi Sunak was uh, describing the future uh, for us 
in the UK and around the world, in fact, uh, with respect to artificial intelligence. Uh, he's saying that AI has the potential to transform uh, society, but it brings new dangers and fears. Uh, so this speech that he gave yesterday was really a precursor to the AI Safety Summit, which is going to be hosted by the UK on the 1st and 2nd of November. Uh, and uh, this, of course, is coming under the Department for Science, Innovation and Technology. One of the key objectives of the AI Safety Summit, they say, is the this is the first ever summit to discuss AI safety, is to come to a shared understanding on the emerging risks, uh, which can then inform how ma nations manage them. So let's just look at uh, some of the things that he said in his speech. The British people should have peace of mind that we're developing the most advanced protections for AI in any country of any country in the world. So how are they going to do that? Let's have a guess. Well, they're going to do that by removing all the regulation. They're going to stop the regulation because regulation stops innovation and therefore they've got to stop the regulation. They're just going to let people do whatever they like. This is a point of principle. We believe in innovation. It's a hallmark of British economy. Uh, so we will always have a presumption to encourage it, not stifle it. Uh, instead, we're building world-leading world capability to understand and evaluate the safety of AI models within government because government has demonstrated, particularly in the last two or three years, how well it copes with models, of computer models, whether they described as AI or not, uh, the, uh, particularly with respect to, to, for example, public health. Uh, so they demonstrated how capable government is with modeling, uh, and uh, this is got, now going to be ruled out to AI. Uh, and so just to, to look at what they're actually doing here, they are now shutting down some of the uh, regulatory uh, bodies that they've already established on this. So this is the advisory board for the Centre of Data Ethics and Innovation. Uh, this publication has been withdrawn on the 12th of September 2023. The content is no longer current. The Centre for Data Ethics and Innovation Advisory Board closed on the 9th of September 2023. So they're taking away all the sort of oversight that, that was there for AI already. And then we have the Data Protection and Digital in Information Bill. That's currently being looked at, at par through Parliament or going through Parliament at the moment. And it's going to see the role of the Information Commissioner uh, replaced with uh, an Information Commission. So they're going to keep the name more or less the same, but the role is going to be very different and it's going to have a lot less uh, oversight and regulatory oversight on what's going on. So here is uh, Professor Fraser Sampson, the Surveillance and Camera, uh, Surveillance Camera Commissioner. Uh, the loss of regulation oversight in this key area comes just as the evolution of AI-driven biometric surveillance makes it more important than ever. Uh, but don't worry, uh, this is going to be the safest place on Earth uh, for uh, not. Yes. <laughs> or not. Okay, uh, if you like what the UK Column is doing, you'd like to support us, uh, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, join us there, become a member. Uh, this is how we exist and uh, your uh, help very much appreciated. You could pick something up uh, on the UK Column shop and, uh, well, it's nearly coming to Christmas again. And so the uh, gift ca gift cards are available if you would like to grab one. Uh, for anybody waiting for an MHRA t-shirt, uh, those will be with us on Monday. So they'll be shipped out next week. Uh, you shouldn't have to wait for very much longer. We just add to that, Mike, it is this tremendous support by our subscribers and people who donate to the column that have allowed us to start to expand what we're doing. We want more content. We want more people presenting. Uh, we want more investigation. And all of this is possible with your support. And ultimately, if you can bring in more subscribers, this makes uh, makes everything possible. So, yeah. Yep. And do, but you can also help by sharing material. So uh, ukcolumn.org, especially ukcolumnextracts.co.uk. Uh, now, we have got a bit of a correction. Now, NewsGuard says we don't make corrections, <laughs> but we have a bit of correction to make. Well, it's a very important one. And of course, I am at fault because I'm going to call it a typo. But uh, I was reporting on the fact that either Keir Starmer had got two opposing ideas in his head or a lot of people suggested he was lying. Well, um, I couldn't confirm or deny that. Uh, but apparently the key thing that I got wrong was that I made a mistake with his his name, which uh, should have been K-E-I-R, and I put it more construction company, K-I-E-R. So there we are. There's a correction by UK Column, and we do apologise to Mr. Starmer that we got his name wrong. Now, on much more important issues, uh, we uh, would like to thank a viewer who pointed this Telegraph headline out to us, Care Home Residents Left to Starve in Pandemic. The COVID inquiry is told. Scottish bereavement groups give evidence about how their loved ones were neglected.
Um, now, of course, this is behind the Telegraph's paywall, but uh, this is the, the caption, care and residents may have been ne neglected and left as staff during the pandemic. Lawyers representing bereaved relatives have told Scotland's COVID inquiry. We hope to have a lot more information for viewers about this and uh, stay posted because what a horrific time that was when we allowed our elderly relatives to suffer under the brutality of lockdown. Now, if you think that's bad enough, let's have a little look at how the police are operating in UK in 2023. And another big thank you to a viewer who pointed this clip out to us. Sylvia, Sylvia, just do what Lee said, just go peaceably, he's on his way. He's going to come and meet you. Just go peaceably. Got your keys, got your shoes, and got a coat. Do you know where her medication is kept? I don't know. She keeps all her stuff put away at property, everything. That's right. This police response is for criminal damage because a 67-year-old lady has pruned a hedge or an overgrown tree or shrub in her communal garden. I'm fine. Yeah. I'm fine. Are you? Yeah. Oh, better You just made an illegal arrest there. Oh, I didn't. You did. You did. You did because she's got a letter from the landlord saying she's at access to the garden. It's a communal garden, and she can move twigs. Yeah. So, what's your badge number? You're bullies. You're fascists. Yeah. There's not crime going on like rape, murder. You're going to be held accountable for this. Yeah, you can wave all you like. Illegal arrest, mate. Illegal arrest. Well done. You, your mother must be proud of you. Right, here are some stills from the original Facebook post. You can pause and read if you'd like. But what I would suggest is go in the description, hit the link, and go to the original Facebook post and show support to Rhea and Sylvia that way. Long story short. So there we are, an extremely poignant bit of film, but what does it really show? The disgraceful state of Britain's uh, police at the moment. Um, of course, the male taking control of the situation has got to be that uh, powerfully built man because an old lady is on the floor and she's been cutting twigs. The brutality of it, the callousness of it, um, absolutely no engagement with that elderly lady at all. She's carted off. This is the state of UK in 2023. We are standing on the international platform to lecture other countries as to how they should be conducting their society. It is appalling and uh, the police need to be held to account over this. Okay, let's uh, move back to the Middle East, well, at least the, the United Nations Security Council. Now, we were talking about on Wednesday about the uh, the recent efforts to uh, call for a ceasefire through the Security Council, which failed because of uh, the veto from the United States. Two more attempts have been made at this uh, in the last couple of days, uh, both on Wednesday. Uh, one was from uh, the US, uh, a draft resolution from them, and uh, uh, also uh, one from Russia and the UAE, uh, from Russia, I believe. But anyway, uh, both uh, votes were fa uh, failed. And I'm going to start here with... Vanessa sort of uh, get shown a little bit of the clip from this, uh, a little bit of the, the uh, speech from this. But I just wanted to show the uh, comments from the uh, Israeli uh, permanent representative, Gilad Erdin, uh, on or at least a couple of them on this. Let's have a listen. You would feel that there is a blatant double standard and that international community is blind to your agony and that the, council's, the council isn't taking even the most basic steps that anyone with a slight moral compass should take. 
This is precisely how the state of Israel feels right now. Those who have voted against the U.S.-led resolution have shown the world that this council is incapable of doing the most basic task of condemning ISIS-like terrorists and cannot confirm the right to self-defense of the victim of these heinous crimes. This has perpetrated the most barbaric massacre of Jews since the Holocaust. Hamas is solely responsible for the Palestinians' situation in Gaza. Hamas is committing crimes against humanity. In the wake of the Holocaust, we collectively swore never again. This was one of the main reasons the UN was established. Never again, dear colleagues, is now. Do not forget this. So that's the position of the Israelis. Uh, they, the U.S. Uh, resolution was not satisfactory to China or to Russia. So let's just bring uh, the comments of Vasily uh, Nevedzia on screen, uh, because this is what he had to say. Uh, it's extremely lamentable that for two weeks since this crisis erupted, the Security Council has not been able to send a collective sig signal to de-escalate the situation. Uh, the bloodshed is ongoing. The number of civilian casualties is now in the thousands and millions are displaced. I urge a hard think about these shocking figures. Uh, he said, national and narrow self-centered ideological and political interests prevailed over the aim of stopping a humanitarian disaster. The Russians' main complaint about the US-led draft resolution uh, was that, uh, once again, uh, it's requiring or acknowledging or claiming that Israel has a right of self-defense. It's extremely one-sided as far as they're concerned, uh, and they weren't uh, prepared to accept uh, that uh, basically that the draft resolution went far enough uh, it, with, it, with respect to a ceasefire. The Chinese uh, had this to say, we used our veto based on facts, based on law, based on conscience, based on justice. The US text was seriously out of balance and lacked the strongest calls necessary for a full ceasefire. So no, there is still no agreement uh, within the Security Council uh, on how to move forward because, of course, the United States and Britain are the main barriers to this. As far as I can see, they are not prepared to call for a ceasefire, and uh, that is the problem. No, because we don't want peace. We don't want to stop people being killed. We want to continue the violence, continue the profits, continue the building of the, the power base. This is why there's no effort to stop the fighting in Ukraine either. It's, it's obvious what, what's actually going on in UK and on the international platform. Um, Vanessa, let's come back to you. And you wanted to uh, comment on the video that we were showing on uh, Monday's program, I think it was, uh, respect to the son of the Hamas uh, founder. Yeah, well, I mean, what I found very interesting is that that uh, interview coincided almost perfectly with Israeli President Isaac Herzog putting out this uh, extraordinary claim that during the attack on the 7th of October, Hamas just happened to drop leaflets um, showing how to uh, put together chemical weapons. Now, obviously, I am making the comparison with Colin Powell and the weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Um, but let's see what, how that combines um, with, uh, oh, sorry, um, the, the interview was actually by Alistair Bunkel, um, of Sky News, who also was heavily involved in pushing out the Western propaganda narratives in uh, Syria. And actually, although he says it's difficult to, to um, substantiate what Herzog is saying, after all, he's the Israeli president and therefore he should be given credibility. The documents were sent to none other than Hamish de Bretton Gordon, again, the go-to expert from the UK with connections to MI6, who was used um, to basically shore up the chemical weapon narratives in Syria. So then we had this interview by Fox News of Mossab Hassan Youssef, the son of founding Hamas leader. Um, let's have a look at his background. So between 1997 and 2007, this is a 2010 CNN report. Um, he basically worked as one of the most successful spies for Israel. So for 10 years, he was working, um, providing espionage for Israel and even resulted in the incarceration of his own father. So what did he actually say uh, in the interview? You were shown a section of that on Monday. 
He told Fox News' Brian Kilmeade that Israel should explore using gas. Um, I presume that refers to cyanide gas after evacuating civilians in Gaza. He says it sounds horrible, but I don't see any other option. The tunnels, meaning the resistance, the armed resistance tunnels are interconnected and gas could be one of the solutions. But that's, this has to be in the right time. We cannot just rush into Gaza. Note that he used the term we, which suggests that he's still working or still perceives himself as an ally of Israel. There's no modern army, he says, that is prepared for this type of war. And most importantly, we need to get the civilians out of the picture, which I presume means evacuating them into the Sinai, as that has been demonstrated to be the plan um, of many of the government officials in Israel. As long as there are civilians there, then the operation might be incomplete, he said. Now, I tweeted this out and I suggested that this could potentially lead to a false flag. We have a very familiar claim that chemical weapons are being used by Al-Qaeda. I find that doubly interesting because Israel is known, it's documented, that they supported, they funded, they armed, and they provided hospital treatment for Al-Qaeda in Syria. And yet here suddenly we have claims that Al-Qaeda did have access to chemical weapon manufacturing ingredients, which has not really been fully admitted before, particularly by Western officials who've been um, promulgating the, the Syrian government chemical weapon attack use narrative. So um, Clayton Morris, formerly of Fox News, now of Redacted, actually spoke to Larry Johnson about the potential for a false flag where potentially um, gas of any kind could be used against, for example, Gazan civilians and then blamed on Hamas. A few days later, an article came out in Middle East Eye, um, which again has the headline, Israel-Palestine war. Israel plans to flood Hamas tunnels with nerve gas, source says. So let's see what that source says. Um, Palestinian groups expect Israel to flood Hamas tunnels with a type of nerve gas or chemical weapon under the surveillance of U.S. Delta Force commandos as part of a surprise attack on the Gaza, um, on the Gaza Strip. Um, uh, Israel and the U.S. hope to achieve the element of surprise in order to penetrate Hamas tunnels, rescue an estimated 220 hostages, and kill thousands of soldiers. Now, I do have to mention that there are uh, notifications circulating, particularly on Telegram channels, that 50 uh, civilians among those hostages have been killed by the Israeli bombing on Gaza. And I just want to finish, if there is no false flag in Gaza itself, I would also rather um, predict that there may well be a false flag in the US, in Germany, in France, or even in the UK that could escalate the conflict and would be blamed. And by an attack, I mean a chemical attack, and that could be uh, blamed on Hamas. Now, that is speculation, but I would like to put it out there as a prediction. Okay, Vanessa, thank you very much for that. Well, I'm going to jump back to the BBC. And uh, I was extremely interested in this little article that was, was up sort of 24 hours ago. Um, so the caption was, my family in Gaza, solo vigil sparks protests. And uh, it's a story about what, what was going on in particular location in Israel. I was first of all interested to see who had produced it because this is quite an emotive uh, uh, report and I just wanted to know a little bit more about the journalists. So two names there were at the bottom. And if I bring in the first one, Giddy Kleiman, um, uh, this person has been a staff producer at the BBC for 15 years. So they're extremely experienced. Uh, education, the Reichman University, I wasn't familiar with that. So I thought I would just, uh, just uh, check that one there. And if we bring the university in on screen, uh, this is the first private institution of higher education in Israel. And if I, I'll leave a bit of the detail on screen, people can freeze it, freeze it and read it. But the important thing is it says it's unique in its educational methods, which are based on interdisciplinary approach and the teaching of information technology and global markets. It combines theory with real world experience and provides its students with proficiencies. And the one of the big things they're saying is that uh, it's it's got alumni that come from many um, uh, ultimately go on to high profile jobs and cover many different 
uh, of areas. So um, key positions, government agencies, high tech companies and financial institutions. And my simple point is that this journalist obviously um, should know a lot about Israel and what's going on and has access to high profile people. That's my simple point. But when I looked at the second individual, um, I was intrigued to find this. Now, this is Camera UK, formerly UK Media Watch and BBC Watch. And I'm going to say largely, in my experience, this has been a pro-Israel um, uh, a group which has been looking at how the BBC reports things. So I was very interested to find the BBC's journalists linked with a critical article by this, which says BBC Film on Lot promotes inaccuracies and raises questions. And if we get into it, these are some of the things that Camera UK has picked up. Now, I'm taking these at face value, but my point is that we have other people looking at how the BBC reports, and I'm going to ask some questions at the end. So let's do these points very quickly. Uh, viewers are told that Lod is one of Israel's few mixed cities where Jewish and Arab Israelis live side by side. It then says, the, the uh, criticism says, in order to come up with that misleading portrayal, the journalist had to ignore other places, including Jerusalem, Haifa, uh, Akko, Ramli, Yafro, and others. And also it says that the BBC um, mentioned the women, they're, they're mentioned in the video as mothers of three and residents of Lod, but viewers are not informed that the uh, one lady in particular is a former member of Lod City Council and an activist in the Hadash party and a relative of the Lod resident uh, Musa Hanuza who was shot dead on the first night of unrest in the city. So we're taking these at fa face values, but this is very interesting analysis. And um, okay, that's just highlighting those two points that I've covered. Now, if we go and have a look at Hadash here, it, and we've just chosen something simple, Wikipedia. Hadash is a left-wing party that supports a socialist economy and workers' rights. It emphasizes Jewish-Arab uh, cooperation and its leaders were amongst the first to support a two-state solution. The top also says that this is a left, a far-left political coalition in Israel formed by the Israeli Communist Party and other leftist groups. Uh, so the criticism is that the BBC puts a woman forward without giving you background, which shows that actually she's highly politically active, whether you think that's good or bad. So essentially inaccurate, misleading reporting. But it goes on in the article, they talk about the curfew, which is imposed is just for our Arabs. Uh, but according to the criticism by Canberra UK, the 8pm to 4am curfew imposed by the police on May the 12th, this is a historical article, did not apply only to Arabs, and yet the BBC allowed that disinformation to stand. And uh, if we just pop on through here, uh, they eventually highlight a, a part of the film clip that's with this article, and it says BBC audiences are not informed that Hadala is a, a partisan political NGO with a long record of anti-Israel activity. And uh, the key point here is that the BBC is being disingenuous with both sides of a, of a very highly volatile situation in Israel. And here we've got a pro-Israeli organization criticizing the BBC for the fact the BBC is not telling, its, telling the truth. And I'm going to ask, ask our audience today, is this just a failure of the BBC or is or is the agenda of the BBC to help create the friction and have both sides at each other's throats? Remember that in Syria, BBC charity, BBC Media Action uh, was happy to state that they worked with opposition leaders in order to help their objective in challenging uh, the uh, president himself. So I'll leave readers with that analysis, but I find it fascinating that a pro-Israeli uh, organization is now uh, saying the same things that we are, which is the BBC is simply not telling the truth. Okay, let's uh, look at uh, this. This is David Sachs pushing out. Well, this was a, a Twitter space uh, with Elon Musk. Uh, where is Israel Hamas war heading? Uh, could this lead to World War Three? And uh, this, uh, some of the things that uh, Musk, the Musk uh, said in this uh, interview were picked up by various 
media organizations says, Fortunately, Elon Musk fears the West is foolishly sleepwalking our way into World War III and calls for an immediate ceasefire in Ukraine. Uh, this is TASS, so it got uh, to Russia as well. Musk sees the world sleepwalking its way into another world war. So let's just have a look at uh, some of the things he said. A combination of Russia, China, and Iran should be viewed as very strong relative to the West. As very strong relative to the West, the potential here isn't a small battle. Uh, it's a massive battle where the indust industrial capacity is of comparable size uh, to the Western alliances. We do not have an overwhelming advantage in industrial might. Unfortunately, our policy has been forcing Russia and Iran to ally with China. It's been forcing them. Uh, what choice have we given them? So, uh, first of all. He's recognizing that actually this isn't about sleepwalking into a conflict. This is being uh, engineered. Uh, and so while the general public might be sleepwalking in by not uh, pushing back on what our governments are doing, governments are very, very clear. They are using policy decisions to, to force uh, a reaction from other countries. Uh, and inevitably, uh, two major blocks are create, being created here. Uh, and so Russia has the raw materials, China has the industrial capacity, frankly, a perfect match from a war standpoint. So we need to stop doing that. Uh, well, I think this is what we at the UK column been pointing out for a very long time. If we look at what the UK has been doing uh, over the last couple of decades, but recently in the last 10 years in particular, if we think about Integrity Initiative, uh, the, the absolutely rampant uh, media disinformation about Russia in particular over the last 10 years. And it, it continues, uh, this is just from today, uh, the, the mail banging the war drums again. Putin is trying to form a new axis of terror against the West. Experts fear as Russian despots invite Hamas and Iranian leaders to Moscow. Uh, this couldn't possibly be about peace or uh, making some kind of negotiation over uh, over hostages. No, this is about creating an axis of evil, which we then are inevitably going to fight a war with. Uh, and the, you know the media, the government, the think tanks, the NGOs—they uh, are all, uh, it seems, uh, working together to develop a narrative, uh, which is going to bring us not sleepwalking into third world war. It's going to bring us uh, very rapidly into that, unless uh, you know, excuse me, the general public uh, decides enough's enough. Yeah. Where does that take us? Uh, I think it's back, back to, to Vanessa. Vanessa. <laughs> Um, yeah, very quickly. So I'm going to end with um, two videos. First of all, these both these videos are based on the premise that the establishment of the Israeli state, or what I would call the Zionist state, um, was basically a hit-and-run colonialist project by the British. Uh, the history of that is in these two links, if Americans knew, and then also um, this backup at Mondo Vice, if you want to move on, Mike. Yep. Um, so those two articles will give you the uh, very uh, concise history of what went on. Now, the first video is from um, an intellectual and uh, historian, uh, Shahid Bolson. He has a very controversial past. He has put out a video disputing that controversial past, which is up at his um, YouTube channel. So let's just roll this and listen. I think he talks a lot of sense. We should more or less be on the same side, but they keep making you do things that make it impossible for us to side with you. And that's the whole trick. And you keep falling for it. We don't have a problem with Jews. We never did. Muslims don't have a problem with Jews. And history attests to that fact. But the people who do have a problem with Jews uh, are the biggest backers of Zionism. And we do have a problem with Zionism. And you should, too, because it's a plot that's against you and not for you. If you think about it, they're tricking you in every which way. The U.S. didn't defeat the Nazis and liberate the concentration camps. Russia did that. Some of the biggest backers of the Nazis were in America. And after the war, they brought over all the top Nazis in Operation Paperclip. And you know it. And right now, uh, they're backing an army uh, in Ukraine who literally fly the swastika, fighting against the country that ended the Holocaust. And you're supporting them. You see how confused you are? Don't you see how they've never changed? How the West has never changed. Don't you see uh, how they want you to be against anyone who ever gave you refuge, anyone who was ever decent to you? And you still think this is support? You still think this is love? You think this is friendship? 
They're using you and they're ruining you because they never stop being anti-Semitic. That's the truth. They never stop being anti-Semitic. So my message to uh, Israelis would be stop being led by the nose by anti-Semites and actually make peace with the Semites, with the Arabs, with the Muslims and get yourselves free once and for all from the United States, from Europe and from uh, Zionist anti-Semitic manipulation because it's going to be the death of your country. It's going to be the death of your society. And like I said, it's going to be the death of your souls. Because in order for you to do what the United States wants you to do, you have to do things that are against your belief system. You have to do things that are against your morality. You have to do things that are against your own sense of humanity. And it's going to destroy your reputation. And it is destroying your reputation all across the world and more importantly across the global south, which is where the future is. So you need to stop uh, being manipulated by the West. You need to stop being manipulated by the United States and stop being manipulated by the people who are taking money from the United States and lining their pockets with it. They're sacrificing your children, they're sacrificing your sons and daughters, they're sacrificing your quality of life, and they're sacrificing your future just to line their pockets. Everybody knows that uh, Netanyahu is doing nothing now but trying to save his political career no matter how many lives have to be lost, Palestinian lives or Israeli lives. He doesn't care and neither does America. So you need to wake up and start using that great brain uh, that we all keep hearing about. I'd, I'd just um, like, to, um, sorry. sorry, Vanessa, if I yeah, may, I'd like ahead. to, mm. I'd like to say that I've listened to to all of that uh, uh, mm. clip. So we we just had a part of it there and encouraged the audience to listen to all of it. Uh, it made me think the calm delivery I really liked, uh, but of course mm. he's he's talking about a nation being led by the nose. Uh, but I feel here I am in UK in 2023. And I'm in a nation which is being led by the nose by individuals that I do not feel have got the best interests of this uh, country at heart. And yet, what do they do? Uh, they're planning on a global scale, on a Davos scale, in order to change the way this society functions and the US society functions and the way uh, societies function in the European Union. And uh, it doesn't surprise me at all that we would have the same problems in, is in Israel itself, where the government is not necessarily what people think. So I'm, I'm just going to say it's worth watching the whole clip and thinking about the country that you live in, wherever you are in the world, because it seems to become increasingly clear that our governments have an agenda between themselves and not in the best interests of people in their own nation states. And for the people in the chat box that didn't catch the name, it's Shahid Bolson. Uh, so, sorry, yeah. Vanessa, go ahead. We'll, we'll also discuss him a little bit more, um, maybe an extra. Um, but I think it's worth pointing out that documentation shows that, for example, in the late 1890s, after the inception of Zionism, most Jews and Jewish leaders at that time dismissed Zionism as the latest anti-Semitic cult. Very important. So the, the last video is Rabbi uh, Yisrael Feldman. Um, of, uh, you can follow him on Twitter, uh, Torah Judaism, Jews United Against Zionism. This is a relatively short uh, clip, but you can watch the whole thing um, on Twitter. The Zionists do not represent the Jewish people and certainly not speak in the name of the Holy, Holy Torah. The very name Israel was stolen by them. Authentic Jews around the world demand that the entire land and all rights be restored to the Palestinian people. As Jews, we say that our people will be more safe and our religion more respected under Arabs who believe in God and fear Him than under these heretics, Jews only by birth, who make war against Judaism and humanity. We pray for the speedy and peaceful dismantlement of the State of Israel and for the time when Palestinians and Jews will once again live side by side in peace and harmony. I think, I mean, I think it's just interesting to get um that opinion, which is echoed, by the way, by many Jews in America, in Europe, uh, and in the UK, and we're seeing more and more Jews going onto the streets um, to demonstrate against what their government in Israel is doing. 
Yes. Okay, Vanessa, thank, thank you very much for that. I'll, I'll just say back to our audience today that um, the views that have been put across, um, we're, we're pleased to put across because we think they're important issues which we need to talk about. Uh, we also know that there are individuals um, who wish to put across um, comments from an Israel perspective, and that is only right, and within UK column ourselves, uh, we are covering as much as we can of this tremendously emotive situation. So today is Friday. Monday will be another UK column news where we'll be looking at other aspects of what's happening. But nobody should be in any doubt that the position of the UK column is that we want this horrific violence to stop, uh, whether it's in Gaza, whether it's in Israel, whether it's in Ukraine. And we believe that it's going to take a lot of effort by a great many people in many nations to call their own governments to account to stop this violence. And uh, we'll leave you with that thought on this Friday afternoon. But thank you very much for joining us. We'll be back at the same time on Monday. And we'll be back for extra before We that. will be back for extra as well. So if you're a subscriber, join us then. Bye-bye.